Welcome to the dough, where Cash is queen and we hardly know her, but we're still here figuring her out together. Because y'all, season two is here, okay? Hosted every week by me, X Maya. Remember, I'm going to be talking to all types of people about their relationship to money. Reality stars, entrepreneurs, financial experts, and even some of my own friends. Basically, anyone who will get real with me about their dollars. How they make money, how they spend it, and how they save it. Because I'm trying to retire early, people. Season 2 of The Dough is out on March 21st, wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. This is In The Bubble with Andy Slavitt. Welcome. Hey, we have a few more days left to fill out our survey if you haven't filled it out yet. You can find it right in our show notes, and you can tell us what you want to hear. And one of the things that you've told us you want to hear is you want to hear from actual experts on topics that matter. 85% of you want to hear from actual experts on topics that matter. And so when it comes to what happened in Memphis with the killing of Tyree Nichols, I thought, okay, why not bring on an expert that people can really hear from the source of what is really going on inside of the black community and inside police departments and police reform. And so we have Duray McKesson, who's coming on the show today. You may know Duray first became visible to many people during Ferguson. You'll hear about his background, so I won't go into it in, in all the detail, but Duray can track kind of what's actually been happening and what's actually been changing since Ferguson, since Freddie Gray, since the Minneapolis police killing of George Floyd, to Tyree Nichols. Because I think when you hear those things, and you see them on the news, and you're, I, I'm sure you're like me, you're like, oh, here we go again. I thought we were done with this. And it's hard to tell whether we're making any progress. You know, we've we've got body cams. Why isn't that enough? We have all of these things we've done and, and you sit here and you think logically we just are better than this. We're, you know, we're not going to see people beaten senselessly for no reason, uh, helplessly. And yet here we are again. And so apropos to our survey, we have DeRay on the show because I think, you know, no one can talk about this. Uh, no one has spent more time on what's happening inside police departments what's changing, what's not changing, then DeRay. And I put the question to him, have things changed? Are things getting better? Or are we exactly the same? And his answer surprised me. And I think his answer will surprise you, perhaps. So I want you to hear 
from Dre. I think it sounds like one of the things you tune into the show. Please, again, look at the survey. Fill it out. It just takes a minute or two. And, of course, if you got something more to say, you can always email me. And that's at andy at lemonadamedia.com. I will read your email. And if you have show ideas or other thoughts, we'll play them for you. I hope you're having fun listening to the show. We're having fun making it for you. Let's bring in DeRay. Welcome back to the bubble, DeRay. It's been a while since, since you've been back on. Andy, it's always an honor to be here, and I will never forget my very first conversation with you uh, so many years ago now. Yeah, we're like old friends now. I know. You were the first person to help me understand this between Medicare and Medicaid. It was a defining moment in my podcast career. And I will say, you like, you're looking a little more old and distinguished than when I first met you. You were, <laughs> Back then, I was like, this guy's so young and so accomplished, and now I'm like, he's so mature. I'm, I've chilled out. I, you know, the world's still crazy. We still got a lot of work to do, but I'm a little more chill. For those who don't know you, can you talk a little bit about how you got connected to activism around police violence and go back to Ferguson? So I was on the original protest in Ferguson during 2014 when Mike Brown was killed by the police and spent 400 days in the street with so many other incredible people. And then afterwards, we're trying to figure out like, how do we end police violence once and for all? Started Campaign Zero, an uh, organization that changes laws and policies to make sure that we can move beyond policing and in mass incarceration. So we've all seen the video, or most of us have seen the video of what happened with Tyree Nichols. We start out with, why, why does this happen? Yeah, you know, zooming out, it's like the police kill on average three people a day. So this is happening like much more than makes the news or videos that you see. And the third of all the people killed by strangers actually killed by police officers. So from a, is it happening a lot standpoint? It is, you know, in 2014, people thought it was just Ferguson, but we see that it's all across the country. Now the why it's happening, you know, some of it is just straight up racism. And then some of it is like, you know, why do we send a person with a gun to respond to a whole host of things? I don't know. Like, why does a person with a gun have to be the person to tell you that your taillight's out or that you didn't stop at a stop sign? Like, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And the third is the institution of policing, not only the historical roots, but what would it be like if you had a job where it was impossible to get in trouble? Like, of the 1,200-ish police who uh, people get killed each year, the police that kill them, all, the highest number of convictions ever for officers who kill people is 1% in a given year, 11 officers. So you pretty much know that if you kill somebody, there is going to be no consequence to it. And I think that that really has a lot to do with why the outcomes look the way they do. Okay. So some of that is going to get into the culture of policing, because it sounds like that has something to do with this. I think maybe explore all three of those pieces, but I, I just want to maybe respectfully start with Tyree and his family. What does justice look like in a situation like this? Yeah. So remember, we think about the difference between justice and accountability. Justice comes before the trauma. Justice is the idea that you shouldn't have to experience the trauma in the first place. Uh, the best that they can get at this point is accountability. So the officers got fired. The officers are being charged with crimes. Uh, the unit has been disbanded. I think that the other thing that we have not seen that is sort of special in this case is that remember that the police chief who fired the officers and who disbanded the unit, she is the person who created the union in the first place. She made the Scorpion unit. What She didn't inherit it. She made it. So I think that removing her feels like the next logical thing. I don't know how she is not as responsible as anybody else in this moment. So 
what has changed and what hasn't changed since Ferguson, between Ferguson and George Floyd, between what happened to George and what happened to Tyree in the police's relationship with the black community and in police violence in general? I think from 2014 to 2020, it was people finally accepting that this was happening all across the country. I remember in 2014, I remember in 15 and 16, where people were like, oh, you know, Ferguson is bad. Or when Freddie Gray got killed, they were like, oh, it's bad in, uh, it's bad in Baltimore. When Walter Scott got killed, they were like, it's bad in Charleston. But people weren't like, there's a problem across the country. They were like, there's a problem in these places. I think when uh, George Floyd was killed by the police, I think that people were like, okay, I get it. There's like a thing all across the country. I think 2020 to today, I think that we've seen some structural things change in a good way uh, and be proposed and not change, but the proposals are good. And I think that we've actually seen city council people and local officials, which is which is really who matters in this in this area. I think we've seen them move away from defending the police as like the best people for safety, uh, but just not knowing what to do. So like 19 states pass use of force laws. Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights, which are like state-level protections for the police that are pretty wild. Maryland was the first state to have them. Maryland, two years ago, was the first state to repeal theirs. We've seen no-knock legislation. So no-knock's either uh, restricted or banned in six or seven states. That's a good thing. So we've seen some stuff happen that just historically has just never happened before and never happened at this pace. Is it enough? No. Is it making some difference? It is making some difference, yeah. Uh, and it's good that, like, there's a model for it. So Maryland has the best no-knock bill and no-knock restrictions in the country. Minneapolis has the best— Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so a no-knock is what killed Breonna Taylor. The police just, like, show up at your door and, and break in. Uh, the The reality is that banning no-knock warrants, so, like, the just the piece of paper that allows it to happen, doesn't really do much. Because the police don't need a no-knock warrant to break into your house. They can use a regular search warrant, get to your house, Andy, and be like, I heard the toilet flush— and they will say hearing the toilet flush is evidence that evidence is being destroyed. Or they'll be like, saw the um, saw the blinds flicker. And that'll be enough evidence to say that they you were hiding something. So they'll just break into your house. So up until we did these laws, like in Maryland, the law now says that the police have to wait 20 seconds before they enter. 20 seconds isn't enough, but it used to be zero. In Minneapolis, the police have to wait 30 seconds at night. It's the highest restriction in the United States. Before the laws changed, the police didn't have to say they were the police. They didn't have to wear uniforms that said they were the police, right? Like, you know, so it's those sort of things that seem basic, but they weren't the law anywhere. There's like no reporting. So these sort of things do actually save people's lives, restricting nighttime raids. Like you shouldn't be able to throw a flashbang through somebody's window in general, but definitely not at 9 p.m. when the kids are, you know, like that doesn't make sense. So so those things actually really do matter. Or, or the simple stuff like banning neck restraints. You'd be shocked. It's like an uphill battle to ban neck restraints Across the country, the police literally like, if we can't choke people to death, we'll get killed. That is their best argument for why they need to be able to choke and strangle people. Let's take a break and let's come back and talk about why some of the things that we believed would solve this problem, like body cameras, haven't exactly worked. There. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. 
Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. Can't get enough of your favorite Lemonada Media podcasts? By subscribing to Lemonada Premium today, you'll gain access to fun and inspiring bonus content from all of our podcasts across the Lemonada Media network. As a subscriber, you can listen to never-before-heard interview excerpts between Julia Louis-Dreyfus and her A-plus guests on Wiser Than Me, laugh along with Elise Myers as she and her guests play a rapid-fire questions game on Funny Cause It's True, and continue to uncover new ways to make life suck less through our exclusive subscriber audio. Check out a free trial of Lemonada Premium today in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. There are some common, I don't know if they're tropes or truths or things that people would throw around, oh, well, um, just give the police body cameras. Um, uh, we got to have police that, quote unquote, look more like the community. Um, a lot of things that I think for a time people felt like, well, if we just do this one thing, there'll be no more police violence. We have body cameras. We have more representation in the police department, at least in some communities. But they don't necessarily seem to be making a difference. Are these tropes wrong? And if so, why are they wrong? Or what do they miss? Yeah, so body cameras might do something. They just don't do what people want them to do. So people think that body cameras change police behavior. Now that we've had them long enough, it's not clear that that is the case. Like, there are not studies that are like, cool, when you put body cameras in, communities are safer. What the studies do say is that communities often feel safer. It doesn't mean that use of force decrease, but they might feel safer. And as we've seen with our own eyes and confirmed by studies, is that it just doesn't change police behavior. Like, they don't necessarily act differently because there's a camera there. Does it surprise you that it hasn't changed behavior? No, because they get to control when the camera, you know, I will tell you what happened with body cameras is that body cameras became a thing in this moment before any of the activists sort of like introduced a framework for it. So across the country, officers can look at their body camera footage before they write reports. They can, you know, there's some places, Andy, that say that the, their supervisors can only look at their body camera footage twice a year. You're like, that's crazy, right? So I, I wasn't surprised that the body camera footage didn't change their behavior I think what is also true about body cameras and cameras in general is that we, it's almost impossible to get an officer held accountable without footage. So if you're trying to get somebody fired or whatever, camera's super important. If you want them not to do the thing in the first place, camera's questionably important, right? Same thing with training. Is that like, you know, there are a lot of studies on police training. Don't change police behavior. Do they probably do some good things that aren't behavior changes? Yes. But if the goal was to train them so they harmed communities less, like just doesn't do that. And then there's only a handful of studies about the representation of officers and or like race representation. And there's one study that suggests that departments with over 30 percent people of color do actually hurt people less. But there are only a handful of departments that fit that criteria and the effect is negligible. Right. Uh, But what we see across the country is that there really is no accountability. Like officers are not getting terminated. They certainly aren't being convicted. So if you're an officer, you if you just hedge your bets and do something wild, you're probably going to be okay. So, like everything else, it shouldn't surprise us that if you just do one thing and sit back and go, oh, we didn't fix the problem, it feels like a lazy way to address 
a situation that we would never do about something that matters. And the thing that I learned from you is an approach that's more comprehensive, that covers all the root cause elements, and importantly is grounded in the data. It starts with, you know, why are these things happening? What actually works? Where are best practices? And you introduce this through 8 Can't Wait and Campaign Zero. I wonder if you talk a little bit about that and what your current thinking is on what the actual comprehensive approach to really ending this situation is. Yeah, so I think it's like not one thing, as you said. And, you know, we did this thing called 8 Can't Wait, which is about use of force. It's like, the police should not shoot into moving cars. That sort of makes sense, right? Like I've been in rooms with police chiefs, Andy, and we'll be like, we'll explain to them if you kill the driver, it doesn't stop the car. And they're like, good point. And you're like, yeah, that's, I'm not really a genius for pointing that one out, right? Like shooting into moving vehicles is, is bad. Um, you shouldn't choke people to death or strangle them. Like that is simple. There's an interesting one that's part of the eight that's the police should have to report every single time they point their gun at people. That actually does decrease the number of shootings in a city by police because what we find is that they point their guns at people way more than you'd ever imagine. But when they have to report it, they actually do it less, which is a good thing requiring de-escalation, right? So there are all these things that are like, should be the floor, should have been in place. I mean, that's our thing on Memphis. Memphis publicly has been like, they did all eight of the eight, can't wait. We reviewed the policy. They've only done two of them. One of them we wrote into the law in 2021. So they've only done one on their own. Um, They have six more to do and they could literally do them tomorrow. No vote, no hearings. Like they could just do it and they have not. We're going to put a link for people and I really encourage people to look at what the eight items in the Eight Can't Wait campaign are, and some of the other things that DeRay is referring to. We also have an episode that dates back to 2020 with DeRay that we'll also put a link to where we talk in real detail about police reform suggestions. And But there's something specific in, to this case which raise, at least for the public, new questions for you, questions I know you've been dealing with and trying to call people's attention to. One is this Scorpion unit. These police units, not specific to Memphis, of course, but, you know, LA has had big, big historical famous problems with a very similar type of police unit. You go through and look at the literature, you could document how these units, I don't know if every time, but certainly huge examples of them becoming unaccountable, dangerous, corrupt, and out of control so I'm wondering if you just help us. Can you help us understand the psychology behind these police units? Are they all bad? Why? And, and if so, like it seemed like they're all bad to me, but why are they bad and what makes them bad? Yeah, you know, Memphis is a case study that like, if you think about the most elite unit, why are they doing traffic stops? Like if you're supposed to be doing like, if you're supposed to be getting like the worst crimes, then like, why would you be doing track that? So that just shows you that like it is shady by nature. Uh, what I'll say too, is that, you know, the, the, the most recent scandal is the GTTF in Baltimore. So there was a gun trace task force that was an elite unit focused on getting guns off the street. What we come to find out is that they are robbing people. They are stealing from people's homes. They are planting evidence on people. And the way we find out is that an officer gets put on the unit, a new guy, he gets assigned to the unit. He's asked to commit a crime pretty early in his time, like first week in the unit. He thinks that it's like a moral test. He thinks that he's being tested, so he doesn't do it. Then he realizes, no, no, that's actually what they do. He goes to the FBI and they 
ultimately indict the vast majority of this unit and those officers are in jail, but it disbands the whole unit. And it comes out that like no oversight, they were actually selling drugs themselves. They were stealing. There's like footage of people's home cameras, like in their house where they're like going and taking stuff out of their safes, but they were the police. And like, you yeah. only do that when there's no accountability, no oversight. In Baltimore, when you used to file a complaint against an officer, you'd have to go to a police precinct. They would destroy it at the precinct. That's crazy. There's a TV show about this unit. I'm trying to remember what it's called. We own the city. We own the city. If you haven't seen that and you like good quality TV, I thought it was an amazing show and amazing. You go, wow, this is a cool piece of fiction. And you're like, no, this is real. This happened. Unbelievable. Um, unbelievable. So the way I, I picture these units getting set up, and maybe I'm wrong, but is that some politician is feeling the heat to do something about crime and show that you're doing something. And so they say, we're setting up this unit. Is that normally how this happens at the mayor? The police chief is like, see, we're going to trot out this very elite unit to show you that we're dead serious about violent crime or drug crime or whatever it is they're trying to appease what they think is what the public wants. Yeah, I think that some of it, and they actually started around what we call hotspot policing. It's this idea that we should flood communities with high crime rates with the police. And what we would say is that you should flood those communities with resources, right? Like not the police, but but these elite units come out of this idea of like find the hot spot and heavily target them. And while we thought that was always a bad idea, the data hasn't come out to show that that's actually led to a decrease in crime, right? So you flood the air with the police and like crime's not decreasing. You know, the only thing that we have seen is that when you do actually concentrate resources in those neighborhoods, crime goes down. And you're like, that makes sense. If people are broke and feel like they got to steal, they will make different choices, right? We even think about things like adult literacy as a public safety strategy. If you're 17 years old and can't read, you're making different choices in the world, right? All right, let's take one more quick break. And then, DeRay, let's come back and talk about whether or not you feel hopeful and optimistic about where we're headed with the future of policing or whether or not which is stuck. People love to pretend that there are simple formulas for living your best life now. Eat this and you won't get sick. Manifest it and everything will work out. But there are some things you can choose and some things you can't. And it's okay that life isn't always getting better. I'm Kate Bowler, and on Everything Happens, I speak with kind, smart, funny people about life as it really is. Beautiful, terrible, and everything in between. Let's be human together. Everything Happens is available wherever you get your podcasts. Last Day is a show about the moments that change us. I just don't think I will ever get used to this. I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and I have had one of these moments. We all have. So let's unpack the chaos that is our human existence together. I don't believe things happen for a reason. I don't believe the universe has a plan. Each week, I sit down with a new guest to explore happy, sad stories of transformation. It's leaning far, far into the pain. That's what it is. Listen to Last Day wherever you get your podcasts. So 
You mentioned the three causes of police brutality, and I want to make sure we're touching at least on all of them to some degree. The first one you mentioned was was racism. We had Keith Ellison on the show on Martin Luther King's birthday holiday to talk about the prosecution of the police officers in the George Floyd shooting. And then he ran a race for attorney general in Minnesota against someone who said he's soft on crime. And of course, you know, he's making the point, everybody needs to feel safe, not just people in communities, but people need to feel safe from the police. George Floyd needs to feel safe. Yet he almost lost because there was this demagogue issue saying Keith is soft on crime. He wants to defund the police, et cetera, et cetera. And so it feels like you've got this political pendulum where Republicans and even some liberals are saying, hey, we need law and order. And you need people going, hey, wait a minute. What happens here? This is exactly what causes police departments to oversteer, get too much power, and creates this violence. How do you see that kind of discourse? I think you're right. I think that if there's any work for the movement to keep doing, it's the how we do it. I think that people are aligned on the what. Minneapolis is a great example. People are like, okay, this feels sort of crazy, right? Can't have the police for everything, da da da. When the what became no police department, people were not, the majority of people were not there. And that was really hard, right? Like, you know, some people wanted to abolish the police department and make that new department of community safety, and some people didn't. And I think that there actually is, there are not as many solutions that are really public as people want. And I think that, you know, people are afraid, some people are afraid, and the the demagoguery around the crime data is really hard too. So crimes, so there are 66-ish cities that collect crime data on a regular basis. For the first time ever, 60 of those cities had a spike in homicides. We've never seen it since and never seen it again. Uh, but it is untrue to say that that was sustained or why, you know, like that was like this weird blip that happened with the pandemic, but people got really spooked. But when we poll people and ask them, have you seen crime increase? They're like, no. But when we ask them, do they feel like crime increase? They say yes. And that's like a, that's just the way the crime happens. But Minneapolis, like the best no-knock law in the United States at the city level, hands down, traffic enforcement, like very few people in Minneapolis today are being pulled over for traffic. Like it's just moving violations are not really a thing in Minneapolis anymore. There's been some real movement on this. I think that we got to lay the groundwork to help people imagine a world beyond the police when there still are homicides and stuff like that. Now, the, the thing about homicides that we remind people is that homicides are rarely random. They're almost always relational. Most violent crime is relational, not random. Well, the reason they imagine it is because politicians say, look at these immigrants Look at these drug dealers and fear sells. I mean, there's a whole political party that has, as one of its strategies, make people fearful and they will make irrational decisions and we'll have live closer to a police state. I mean, Donald Trump didn't really beat around the bush on that tactic. He wasn't very subtle about about saying that. I mean, he called Governor Walls after the George Floyd shooting when people were in the streets and said, I will send the National Guard to start killing people. He told Governor Walls told me that. Uh, Governor Walls has said that in other settings. So they tap into something that has these types of consequences. No, I think you're right. And I think that the left has to be, I think we have to be louder, especially our elected officials that like a counter narrative that reminds people of like what is true and what's not true. I think about the crime data. It was hard to see people on the left, like buy these talking points. You're like, no, it just like, it didn't happen. It was not a crazy increase. Like it just didn't happen. You know what I mean? I do think that we got to fight people on the facts a little bit more than we do often. So, should we be feeling like there is some amount of progress that we should be 
not discouraged, but encouraged to do more of some of the things that we know are effective? Or should we feel like things aren't getting better enough because there's these ingrained cultural things that are very hard to deal with, the police unions, some of the other things you talked about that are just endemic to policing in this day and age. Which side of that do you come out on? No, so I think they're in a good shape because in a lot of cities, there are new people being elected to office who are like down for the ride. They are like, let's do the thing. Now the challenge with those people is that they don't really know the content. Like that we got to teach them the content, but in terms of are they on our side and ready to take big risks and do big things, they're actually there. And I'll tell you, in 2014, 15, 16, I would talk to city council people and they would fight me and be like, the police are the answer. Today, what's happening in a lot of cities, especially progressively, they're like, DeRay, we know the police aren't the answer, but you got to give me something else. That is what I'm hearing more of now. They're like, okay, I'll fund the other thing. I'll do that. So that's one. The second thing, Annie, you know this because you used to work in the government at scale. It is different. There's a difference between saying we did this in a neighborhood and we did this at the city level, right? And some of the best solutions that we've seen that alternatives work at the block level. They work at the three block level. How you scale it is what becomes a little more complicated. And that's what we're trying to, from a policy perspective, that's what we're trying to help other activists think. It's like the city legislators are only interested at scale. They're like, tell me this. The police are easily scalable. It doesn't work all that well, but can you scale it? Yeah, that's, they, they pass the scale. So like traffic enforcement, people keep coming to us being like, what's an alternative to traffic enforcement? Good question. There are things that work at the block level, but one of the most popular alternatives to the police pulling people over is cameras. Do I want to put red light cameras all over the city? No, right? Do I want to record every neighborhood in the city all day long just for, no. Like, do I want to give people fines? If I told you we're going to stop traffic enforcement by the police and put cameras everywhere and you start getting $50 tickets when you go two miles over the speed limit, you're going to be pissed pretty quickly. Right. And we're going to give you all these fines. Like the poorest people are going to be penalized at a rate that the wealthy people are never going to. So like you might be able to afford a $50 fine, but two $50 fines for somebody making minimum wage is a burden that is much higher than your chance of randomly being pulled over by the police. Do you know what I mean? So let's say with this example, what is a better solution than a sort of scaling the sort of camera at stoplights kind of approach? No, I, this is what I'm saying. We don't know. I don't know. Like this is the- you don't know. This is what we're trying to figure out. It's it's not the police. And we also feel pretty confident that it's not a citywide surveillance mechanism, that, that that is not the answer, right? There are interesting things that you could do at the block level. It's just different at the city level. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It really does. Um, in your work, have you done much in communicating and spending time with police officers and with police departments? Yeah, so... We run 35 campaigns, which are like different issues that we run nationally. So in a lot of those, we're pushing police chiefs and lieutenants to like change their policy. So we're working alongside them to push them to do that. Even if we're on different sides of it, we need to call them to be like, hey, change your policy. Some were, were a lot more adversarial publicly, right? Because they're trying to like no knocks. When we say that the police have to wait 30 seconds to enter, literally they come to the hearing and say, you're trying to get us killed. That is what they say. So we are just at odds with them on those, right? Some we are pushing them on their policies. Some we are fighting them at the legislature. And it depends on the campaign. But we, we're with them a lot. And I'll tell you, uh, whether we're across the table from them or fighting them very deeply, 
Um, I haven't heard many compelling arguments. Like they fear is their best argument. Like in Washington, we helped the advocates pass a law that said that uh, the police had a probable cause for car chases. Feels pretty basic, right? What the police did is that they start letting people drive against traffic and they wouldn't stop them. And they were like, the law said I can't chase him anymore. And that sort of stuff freaks out the legislators. So then we have to come and be like, hey, they're lying. But people don't want to call the police liars. They really don't. And it Mm -hmm. baffles my mind. But like that becomes a thing, you know? So in the conversation, whether it's adversarial or whether or not they're just trying to get you to understand their world, fear is what you hear the most. Yeah, I think that the things I hear more today are it'll get us killed, regardless of what the thing is. That that becomes sort of there. They used to say that like you don't understand the job. I don't hear that as much. I hear that this thing will get us killed. Like that is sort of the I hear that the most. Mm-hmm. Um I also hear like the general fear mongering that people need higher consequences, right? That like it's the too lax, too lenient, too da-da-da. The third thing that I think legislators understand now is that the police don't really understand the law. So like one of the things that happened in Washington is that the legal definition of probable cause was something that the police didn't understand, like chiefs didn't get it. So they wanted the standard to be lower, not because it was the wrong standard, but because it was an easier standard for everybody to understand because it really meant nothing. So the police don't really understand the law. And sometimes they fight against things being like, it's too co- you're making it too complicated. If you make this too complicated, we can't do it. So when we put a chokehold band, when we put a neck restraint band in, they literally said, well, you put all these use of force restrictions in, my guys are now going to have to carry a handbook around. Mm-hmm. And when somebody is hurt, they're going to have to pull out a handbook and figure out how to help them. And you're like, well, that, now you know that's not true. You know what I mean? Okay, so tell me the other side of it. What do you hear from folks that you actually go, yeah, I, I get where they're coming from. That's a point that comes from a place of honesty, and I respect it, and it is indeed a difficult issue. Mm, you know, the police often talk about due process when we're trying to think about disciplining them. They're like, due process. And there's a part of that that I'm, I completely agree. Should you have a hearing? Should you have a fair? Da, da, da. Yes, right? They just take it too far. I think that the other thing is that I'm I'm with them on the police occupy a different role in society, right? Different responsibility, different power. I say that that means more responsibility and more accountability. They think that that means more freedom and less accountability. <laughs> so they're like, you know, we're so different that we should be able to get da 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 And I'm like, well, you're so different that this should be a higher standard. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I want to just affirm something you said, and I'm pleased to hear you report that you feel like we're making progress. I mean, due in large part to your work, I mean, we have President Biden signed an executive order implementing reforms for federal officers, banning chokeholds, creating a registry of disciplined officers. I'm sure there's more that can be done, but that's evidence that at least we've got an administration that's focusing on this at the highest level. And of course, the House passed a bill, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which the Senate has never taken up, which bans chokeholds and no-knock warrants um, and tracks abusive police in a database. Are those the right steps? And should we be pushing hard on this legislation? Or do you have a different perspective on legislation like that being effective? No, they're good. You know, I think that the thing that frustrates me about the George Floyd Act in public conversation is remember that there are 18,000 police departments. Almost everything that touches your real life is going to be local. It's like your governor, your mayor, city council. 
and legislature. The federal government cannot make police departments do anything. So the George Floyd Act should pass. The only thing it'll mandate is federal agencies. The biggest federal agency is Border Patrol, 20,000 people. So in the absence of the George Floyd Act passing, what Biden did was he made rules for the federal government. What he can do for local is that they can incentivize it heavily. They can say, like, if you do this, we'll give you grant money. If you don't do this, we won't give you grant money. That's the best. People have talked about the George Floyd Act as as like it's going to change this in policing. It is not going to do that. And like, it's not going to do that. Hmm. And our skepticism around the hardest departments with regard to funding is that the only American president in recent history who has ever withheld money from the police was Trump. And he did it because he was just having a bad day. It wasn't there was like nothing methodical about it. He just was like, we're cutting these programs because he was cutting programs. So there's a law right now that says the police have to report everybody they kill in custody. Only 40 percent of American police departments participate. There is no consequence. They don't lose grant funding. They don't get cut off from anything. And they are willfully non-comply with the law. So we are questioning whether when the George Floyd, if it passes, whether there'll be a consequence when they don't comply because there's no consequence for them not complying on the basic. They just got to report the deaths today and don't do it, you know? Right. So what, one of the things I'm taking away from this, Dre, is that more and more we know what to do there are questions still around how to do it, and there are there's a strong question of will and being able to convince people to get it done. But this is not in the category of we don't know how to do this. Given that that's the case, and if that's the case, I want to just close by asking if people want to get involved, what advice would you give folks to how they can in the most productive way for them to get involved? Yeah, I'd say, uh, remember that all the policing issues are really local. So like, if there's a way to plug in with a local group, that would be one of the most effective ways because the thing that's really going to change is going to be like your police chief, your mayor, your city council. Uh, we'd love for people to volunteer with us at Campaign Zero on the policy and legal front. So if you go to campaignzero.org, you can just uh, click the button to join a volunteer. We'll loop you into whatever we have going on. And the third thing is to be a part of the conversation. You are smart enough to know all these issues. Like none of this stuff is beyond you. So your gut is normally right to at least ask the questions. And when we deal with this in communities across the country, um, you know, if people have the information, they normally end up in a place that is pretty progressive. Like they, if they have the information, they sort of push and ask questions. Uh, do they have the information is really the challenge. Got it. Well, we'll put the links to do that to volunteer at Campaign Zero it's really excellent. It's such thoughtful and passionate work. And look, I think you bring together around an issue that I think people have historically viewed as impossible to move, a sense that we can move if we follow data, if we share facts, if we talk about these issues, if we advocate for these issues. And so I love having you on. I learn something every time. So thanks for being in the bubble. Boom. So good to be here. And I will uh, see you later. Okay. Thanks to DeRay. Thank you for listening. Friday, a lot of talk about outer space, balloons, things being shot down. But what about if we really went into outer space? Got me thinking. So we have the head of Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is a major part of NASA. The director, Lori Leshen, is coming in the show. And we're going to talk about stuff that's even further out in space, including whether there's life out there. So that will be fun. I think you'll love that one. 
it's all sciencey, but she's an amazing explainer of what what's happening to find life out in the universe. Begum Rani on Monday, another expert. We're going to talk about the end of the public health emergency. We're going to talk about what it means to not be in an emergency anymore, and bird flu and other public health topics. She's terrific. We'll look forward to that. Enjoy the next couple of days, folks. Please tune in on Friday and email me anytime. Don't forget our survey. Thank you for listening in the bubble. We're a production of Lemonada Media. Martin Macias, Catherine Barnes, and Cal Sheely produce our show, and I love them dearly. Our mix is by Noah Smith and James Barber. They're awesome part of the team. Steve Nelson is the vice president of weekly content. He's amazing. And of course, the ultimate big bosses, Jessica Cordova Kramer and Stephanie Whittleswax, and they are wonderful. They executive produced the show. Our theme was composed by Dan Milad and Oliver Hill and additional music by Ivan Kiriev. You can find out more about our show on social media at Laminata Media, where you can also get a transcript of the show. And you can find me on post at a Slavit or on a place called Twitter still at a Slavit. Follow in the bubble wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership. And if you like what you heard today, email us. Talk to us. Tell your friends. We appreciate you so much. Talk to you next time. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jose Andres. Maybe you know me from my restaurants or maybe from Wall Central Kitchen, the organization I founded to feed people after disasters. Well, it's time for you to know my podcast. Longer Tables. Each episode, I get to know fascinating people in the most intimate way. Through food. Stacey Abrams, Jojo Ma, Jane Goodall, Padma Lakshmi. I will answer questions from listeners too. Join me in building longer tables, not higher walls, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey friends, it's Megan Trainer. And her big bro, Ryan Trainer, And her husband, Daryl Sabara. Each week on our podcast, Working On It, we share behind-the-scenes stories and bring you into our hilarious and heartfelt conversations, and sometimes with amazing guests. We tackle everything from navigating Hollywood to mental health to Megan becoming a mother, Daryl becoming a father, and so much more. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of our lives and leave no detail behind. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. Listen to new episodes out every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts.